Okay, here we are. We're live. It's the Life of Jim live video podcast. This is season two, episode seven. And this is Writing Nostalgia. And I am interviewing one of my favorite people, one of my favorite writers. He's also a singer, a musician, a rock star, a librarian. He's like a renaissance man, let me tell you. Alan Kalachi. And I'm going to read his bio, and then we're going to bring him in. Give a wave, Alan. Okay. Alan Kalachi is the author of the 2016 memoir, which I'm a little bit obsessed with, called Heart Like a Starfish by Pelicanesis Press. He's also the author of the 2020 ELIT award-winning book, Louder Than Goodbye, which is amazing. It's a book of essays, a lot about music. And that's also through Pelicanesis Press. And he's the author of the chapbook by Bamboo Dart Press, 17 in Life. He also works as a librarian in Rancho Cucamonga. He's blogged for BK Nation, The Huffington Post, Inland Weekly, and get this. He sings for the lo-fi pioneer band, Refrigerator. So, welcome, Alan. I'm going to bring you in right now. Unmute you. You're there. Hi. Hey, thank you for that wonderful uh, introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we've been going back and forth via email. We had a little time in the green room before we started. So, uh, this may sound, and I've already told you this, a little bit creepy and stalkerish. But when I was reading all of your work, and I kind of did a deep dive, I must admit, I'm like, he is the male version of me. I've met myself. <laughs> and I just, and, and that's not why I love your writing, though, because we are different in a lot of ways. But I was so taken in by our intersections. We've written about a lot of the same bands. And I just love the style of your writing, which is sad, funny. You kind of merge the tragic comedy very well. And I, I would exclaim aloud while reading, this is so good. So I hear you is what I'm saying. Your book, Heart Like a Starfish, which I, I was very aware of, but I read 17 in Life first, which I t- would tell everyone to get. It's a steal at eight bucks on Bamboo Dart. But this book by Pelicanesis, Heart Like a Starfish, it's basically about your journey through your heart transplant, which um, it's just gorgeous stunning blue collar writing and when I say blue collar writing I mean it's like you're not an elitist you write in this very beautiful but simple language that anyone can relate to there's stories about family about pop culture you bring in movies you bring in books but it's really about you coping through this pretty traumatic time but there's also so many nostalgia references so that's why I called this episode writing nostalgia You talk about Superman, you talk about Batman, you talk about the Mission Drive-In, you talk about Comic-Con, the Beatles. You even have a Smith song as a title to one of the chapters, which I do too in my book, um, which is my favorite um, Smith song, which there's a light that never goes out. So I'm going to stop talking because I'm just uh, too excited about your work. And let's let me ask you a question. Sure. In all of your work. the ebook Louder Than Goodbye, the memoir Heart Like a Starfish, the chat book 17 in Life. You weave in these pop culture references so seamlessly. Is it easy for you? Does it come naturally? Um, and I think as you like prefaced all this, I think I think it's true. I think we do have a, a similar writing style 
and influence and tone. And I like to think of what we do, blue collar or an authentic voice. And we've talked about music many times before. And there are people who like music and there's people who are like, like us, music is part of our being, right? You reference Bowie and yours to not write about that in whatever I'm writing. That's such a part of me and an element of me. It's not just something. And I think any writer, yourself, myself, it's not just they put this song on in the background. Mm. It's this song expressed how I was feeling at this moment. This is why it meant something um, to me. And I think music helped me to find who I am, find my identity your authentic uh, voice. Um, it, it, it's really like, I think all art forms are great, but I think music is the one that uh, just hits me the hardest on a lot of different levels. Yeah, and I've had people say that it's hard to write about music, but I agree with you. From For me, it comes naturally. Like if I kind of express myself through song lyrics. Like if so, if something happens to me, I'll quote a song, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe we're just, it's a kind of different person, a music person. No, and the way music can work, like in the heart, like a starfish, uh, book about the heart transplant. And so, you know, like a James Taylor song, like Fire and Rain, I hadn't learned in forever for listen to. You know, that was more like my older sister, my mom's music. And I'm, mm-hmm. okay. but I remember uh, while I was in, at Cedar Sinai recovering from my heart transplant, which was a it was a definite journey. Like they gave me a twenty percent chance of of living. But I remember one of the Filipino nurses humming to me. She found out from my family I was a singer and musician. She was too, and started singing me "Fire and Rain" by James Taylor. Wow! And I just remember that. And then I remember not long after I got home, one of my first journey into uh, Trader Joe's. Fire and Rain came on over the PA and you just break down and start weeping. I think we were talking about writing like music. It works as a time machine, but it's always mm. evolving. What a song might have meant at this moment in time, it took on a totally different meaning to you once you connect it to another memory. Definitely. And I think that um, I actually, what's funny when you say that is that um Sorry about this. I'm just trying to turn that off. What's funny when you say that time machine reference is my next question is um, in one of your essays from your ebook, you say music is a time machine, but so is memoir, right? So is one of your goals in all of your writing to memorialize these landmarks in your life? Because in your ebook, um, you talk about the mission drive-in. You talk about the Toys R Us that is no longer there in Ontario. <laughs> And you flip off Walmart that took it over. And um, I mean, are you trying to memorialize and capture that certain nostalgic time that was so formative in your identity, like you talk about? Um, I think a lot of writing, too, is trying to capture something, capture a moment before it, it slips away. But in a weird way, you're also always doing a course with hindsight, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and also at the moment you were going to the Mission Drive-In or Toys R Us, you took it for granted. You didn't know the impact, right? You knew you loved this place and this experience, but it wasn't until you're older where I think you see the um, the true value in it. Um, yeah. 
And well, I, I think and what's funny is that you, like, you and your friends are like ripping off Toys R Us, right? <laughs> all the, all the uh, stormtroopers and your uh, Dodger helmets, and that image of you guys. I mean, yeah, and and you're very like straight up about this. Like, there is no moral to the story here. This is wrong. What we did, but we did it, and it was my favorite story because I could oh, picture you and your brother and your friends and just doing while Chewbacca. I think the they were there, right? The yeah, characters. the characters were there. <laughs> it, it was uh it, it was uh, it was like the heist of the century. <laughs> <laughs> I think you say Ocean's Eleven type caper. <laughs> right. By by ten and eleven year olds, right? <laughs> <laughs> with Dodger helmets. But I mean you do justify it by this with all these funny references about how much this stuff costs and why is this character the same price as the other character and it's twice its size. And how are you supposed to do a real kind of battle when you only have three stormtroopers? Right. Right. It's probably not the best moral justification. <laughs> and you being in law would probably. <laughs> hey, I w- that's jury nullification. I would give you a not guilty just for those oh. arguments. Oh, well, that's more than what my mom would give us. So that I, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, and then you say your parents don't make you take back stuff because back then in the 80s and the 70s, if you got caught shoplifting and you went home with it and your parents sometimes would make you bring it back to the store. And they wouldn't do anything to you. I think I stole uh, a pair of nylons at Mervin's when I was really little. My mom made me take them back and hand them to the manager. I'm so sorry. And they're like, bad, bad. And that was it. No one called the police. It wasn't like the police state that we have now where it's like, prosecute that kid, you know? Yeah. And somehow we never got caught till years later. But one of my friends was uh, told my mom that. And mom was like, I never heard that story. And I was like, <laughs> the statute of limitations has run out. It has actually, it's only three years yeah. on that. Um, w- would you read something, whatever you want, something from heart, like a starfish, or maybe one of your music essays or the toys R us or both. Um, I'm going to put the camera just on you. Um, read for about five to 10 minutes, however long as you want, maybe a couple different pieces. But I really, before we get more into this, I really want people to hear your distinctive voice. And by the way, before we start, um, we have Sean Crosby here. Hi, Sean. And he hey, says, Sean. <laughs> and he says, I got banned. I'll show it. I got banned from JC Penny for something my little brother stole. Yeah. <laughs> that is wrong. I bet you still hold that against him, Sean. I know. I, I, I did leave my criminal past behind us. And uh, Sean has two for anybody listening in. <laughs> As have I. And I'm a public defender now, which is ironic, considering I was a little <laughs> thieving, juvenile, car-stealing delinquent. But I have to just say, Sean, you have my, one of my favorite uh, first names. We're going to talk about Sean Cassidy later. So we'll talk about Sean and David in a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to put the camera on you. I'm going to mute me. Okay. Okay. Well, um, why don't I start with, since we've been talking about it, with... Um, Childhood and a requiem for Toys R Us. Toys R Us is closing its doors after 70 years in business. It marks the end for a company that sold toys, bikes, video games, and birthday presents to millions of American kids. Legions of adults who came of age in the 80s and 90s can probably still whistle their jingle. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. And that's an item from CNN Money. Entering my local Toys R Us was like entering Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. 
I could hear the strains of Gene Wilder singing Pure Imagination every time I entered its bright multi-striped doors. Come with me and you'll see in a world of pure imagination. It was a place where dreams were bought, sold, and take it home to be immediately ripped open. Shining brightly atop the store like a guiding northern star, above this highly stocked mecca was a half-blinking giraffe, known as Jeffrey to his friends, who seductively lured you into his lair, in much the same way the sirens allure sang the sailors towards the treacherous shores. I remember wiping the lower middle-class drool off my sleeve as I'd walked down the noisy, cherry, slurpy-stained aisles, packed with what seemed to be every shiny, bleeping object in the known universe. Toys R Us was a latchkey kid's nirvana. It was a magical oasis, stocked to the root with hoppity hops, talking viewmasters, stretch armstrongs, micronauts, and the crown jewel of my childhood, a plastic 12-inch Batman Mago action figure with a removable cow whose limbs were held together by rubber bands. Like all close and worthwhile relationships, my relationship with Toys R Us was a sometimes precarious, clouded, and troubled one. The fault for this was all mine. Well, I'm sure the heist of several Star Wars figures that myself, my younger brother, and our neighborhood friend pulled off one summer afternoon in the late 70s at our local Toys R Us was not the primary reason for Toys R Us filing for bankruptcy. I'm sure it didn't help. And with the passing of Toys R Us, I feel that the time has now come to publicly fess up to my past crime. The justification we used to validate our crime was comically flimsy then and has only grown more comically flimsier over time. It's so unfair that a jaw is only half the size of a regular figure, but costs just as much. How do they expect us to replicate a Death Star attack with only three stormtroopers? Tusken Raiders always travel in single file to hide their numbers by leaving only a trail of single prints, not because there's only one of them. And so our grade school Ocean's Eleven gang hatched a plan. We would liberate the aforementioned Jawas, Stormtroopers, and Tusken Raiders from their packages and quickly shove them beneath our hard plastic Dodger helmets while a mothball-smelling Chewbacca and a dusty Darth Vader paraded around the perimeters of the store, pitching their wares. And that's what we did. And it worked. Our parents never dragged us back to Toys R Us by our earlobes to return the stolen loot and come clean to the manager. And yeah, I fully recognize this is the most lacking childhood morality tale ever told. A friend who I met years later told me she was also at the same Star Wars Toys R Us event. Her experience that day was far different than mine. While I was pocketing Jawas, she was there with her dad who had brought her there because he could not afford to buy her any figures, but wanted to deliver her the joy of seeing the characters. Her great, her great joy brought him even greater joy. And so there you have a childhood tale of morality filled with grace there. The city of Ontario, where the Toys R Us had resided, is a blue-collar working-class area. It is a wasteland of industrial strip malls and aged-out apartment complexes. It is a place where people from Los Angeles which is a mere 40 miles away, are loath to come to, let alone a dark lord from a galaxy far, far away. 
But for an instant, it didn't seem like that at all. Ultimately, Toys R Us, like that Mego Batman figure, was not a thing made to endure. The rubber bands holding it all together at the center eventually aged, turned brittle, and snapped. And so the largest toy retailer the country has ever seen is now no more. How could it continue to exist in a universe where everything one needs, and really, even a lot of things one doesn't need, is just now a click away, another hapless victim to the age of cheap immediacy? As Toys R Us begins its slow ebb into the past like a dinosaur meeting a meteor, I can't help from reflecting. I'm not the kind to mourn a vanishing retail behemoth. My nostalgia is not thicker than blood, but it is thicker than water. Toys R Us was a shelter that saw me through the storms of my youth, from stuffed cookie monsters to my beloved Mega Batman to Atari 2600 video game cartridges to overpriced collectibles i.e. Batman figures with two dozen points of articulation, purchased at 10 times the price of my original Batman Mega figure. The lot where the Toys R Us of my youth used to stand is slated to become a Walmart supercenter. If there's a better phrase for soulless, pamper-selling, low-wage purgatory in the human language than Walmart supercenter, I don't know what it is. There is a thin, almost undefinable line that separates ridding oneself of childhood things as opposed to callously putting these childish things under and never giving them a second thought. That line between a sometimes dignified... Hold on just a moment. A lo-fi dignified burial and just leaving things behind is a thin one. As the Toys R Us closed, me as an adult, I drove by it one last time to say my goodbyes, to kind of do, give it a one last salute. So what I did, probably not the most mature thing, I gave it the bird. Might have not been the most mature, refined thing to do, but it made me feel just a little bit better, at least for a moment. I don't want to grow up I'm a Toys R Us kid. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I, I had to mute myself because I was on the floor. I, I, you would have seen me like <laughs> doubled over. You have this line where you say mothball Chewbacca, the dusty Darth Vader. And that's what I mean about nostalgia. You're not writing about it in a trite way. You're writing it about in a realistic way. Uh, I remember they used to bring the characters to McDonald's too, the Hamburglar and Grimace, the big purple oh, yeah. dude. And my dad would say, oh, that got canceled. We'd be like, are you going to take us to McDonald's to go see the characters? Oh, no, that got canceled. And as kids, we believed him. But looking back, I'm like, that shit never got canceled. You just didn't want to take us on a Saturday. But, I mean, that's what I mean. You capture it. And you capture geography. I love it. Yeah, and then... um Dennis was like, great. Now my two young nephews, they know about our crime. I hope you're happy. <laughs> well, yeah. And you, you don't sugarcoat it either. You know, if they read the book, they're going to, they're probably going to create a caper of their own. <laughs> and, and part of being raised Catholic is uh, the art of confession, right? So, <laughs> Which all memoir is. Um, I had a question 
you you are so steeped in, in place. I mean, in all your work, the Inland Empire really shines through. Are you at heart, and no pun intended, an Inland Empire boy? Do you consider yourself that? Like, or are you more like straddling Pomona, i.e., SoCal person? Um, I'm very protective of the Inland Empire. In a weird way, if like somebody like us from the Inland Empire tells jokes about the Inland Empire, we can laugh at it, right? But if somebody from somewhere else, particularly in Southern California does, like friends mm-hmm. from Orange County, LA, Pasadena, mm-hmm. wherever, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not yeah. funny. No, you can't talk that about my hometown unless you're from here, right? You can't call it on terrible. You can't call it Fontucky unless you live in the IE. Then you can. Right. Yeah, you, you, we can call ourselves dirt people. You can't call us dirt people, right? Which is one of the slang. Um, I'm protective of the region. I, I, I think if anything, I think, uh, you know, I met so many creative people out here, musicians, writers, artists. I kind of think growing up close to L.A. and Pasadena, but in our own thing, it kind of makes you find a creative voice, I think, um, you're, you're just, wow, I'm going to create my own little scene, particularly if you don't have a car, right? When you're 17, 18. Um, yeah. And going to LA for shows or going to the Green Door in Pomona or going to OC, like to different venues and then coming back here. You know, we had the barn. We had a couple of venue, venues in the IE and clubs and stuff like that, but not as much in LA. But um, your younger self also plays a big role in all of your work. Um, you at the last line of your Toys R Us stories. I I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, and I'm a Toys R Us kid. And how how do you capture for the writers that are out there that are trying to write in this young voice? And it's it takes a while. I'll say mm-hmm. to capture. It's almost like channeling. Like how do you do it? Do you do you go into a different headspace? I do, and I I think the advice I've given a lot of people who write. Um, I, I know you'll agree with this because I've read a lot of your work. To me, if I'm starting to write something, I'm like, this is really making me uncomfortable and awkward and and squirm. I Maybe I shouldn't put this in here. Your inner voice tells you that. But then I'm like, that ends out to be the most truthful things you're writing. Yeah. Uh, nine times out of ten. And that's really hard to, uh, to, uh, to deal with because... Wow. And I know like your mom was at your reading. I went to recently at Ontario and it, it's like, <gasps> I want to be honest. I don't want to hurt these people. Yeah. I love, but I want to be honest with them. I'm writing out of love, but there's warts and all in what we write. And I think it's a, a part of the truth, truth in writing, I think is, um, you know, to have humor, to have music, even if you're writing about something, yeah. uh, kind of dark or troubling because I think even in people's darkest moments somehow they'll find themselves laughing at something stupid or finding some dark comic (laughs) moment in it right and I think that's part of our experience yeah and showing the complexities of character I have a line in my book where I say uh, she's a contradiction about my mom she's hardworking and generous but she's also crazy and um and she can be loud and yelling all the time and uh, I think that Jenny as a character views her mom very differently than I view my mom now because mm-hmm. I'm, I know her as an adult and looking back at my dad being an alcoholic and my mom working two jobs at circle K 
and at the restaurant Yangtze's in Ontario. And then my dad owning the bar and losing everything. We didn't have a house anymore. I, I see. I'm like, oh, my poor mom. But Jenny loved her father and adored her father, worshipped her father in a way. And so, I, yeah, there's always that tension there. Warts and all is true because, like, I can't show it any other way than the way Jenny saw it. I can, right. And look, you, I can write with love now from me now, how I understand my mom. And I, uh, my mom, I, my friend, Michelle Gonzalez, who's uh, a, a panquera, she would tell me, you're a poor mom, dude. I identify with that mother character. And I'd be like, wow, I really, so I really expanded my mom and I worked on my mom's character the most. My dad was easy. Jenny was easy. Jackie was easy. Annie was easy. My mom's character was the hardest to write. And you write a lot about family. And I want to get into that because in heart, like a starfish, and maybe I need more therapy or you, maybe you can uh, give me some therapy. The way you write about your two siblings, uh, Dennis, and is your sister's name Lorraine? Uh, Loretta. Loretta. Dennis and Loretta is so loving. And this relationship that you all have as siblings when you're going through this crisis, it, you know, I'm like, this is like beautiful. Like the way you all interact and the way you write about it. How, like, how was that? Did you have to go through multiple drafts to get there or did it start out that way? And everyone was just super supportive. And it was, there was not like, I didn't really see a lot of chaos with the sibling, like rivalry or arguments or anything like that in the book. Um, I think we're freaks in that, in that all three of us <laughs> uh, are on the same page and always have each other's backs like Aww, that. Um, beautiful. Which is, which is rare, right? I'm the well-balanced middle child. Um, but When I told Dennis I was going to interview you, he's like, you're smart. You picked the nice one. <laughs> <laughs> My brother always says, you can be sarcastic and say these things, Alan, but you say it with a smile and a gentle <laughs> laugh. And sometimes he says it drives me crazy. You can get away with this. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can tell somebody something and they'll be fine with it. He's like, I can tell him the same thing. <laughs> he, he does come off a little grumpy and your sister's a little bossy. And that's kind of normal. I liked how you uh, showed the dynamics of the different roles that you all play together. Because you're three, like me and my two sisters are three. And we all have different roles. But I mean, what I loved about it was the way you always told each other you loved each other. The way they were there. And my sisters are there for me. Don't get me wrong. But we have these outbursts with each other. And I think it's from growing up in a, a kind of chaotic household that we reenact it. So maybe your guys's coping is just super healthy because I was like, they are very well adjusted. At, like you said, you have each other's backs. Like you felt more like friends in some ways than siblings. Yeah. And I think you hit on something. I think because um, our parents getting divorced at such a, we were like really young, you know, Dennis was like five. I was maybe eight, wow. my sister loving. And this was in the seventies when divorce wasn't as common as it is now, where you came from a divorce background. And because of course, as long as we can remember our mom and dad, were not getting along while they were together the last years of their marriage. And so I think we kind of bonded with each other to help each mm-hmm. other through that traumatic experience. Um, no, I saw that. It was beautiful. It was it was probably my favorite part of the book. 
is the relationship of the siblings. And then the other favorite part was the pop culture. Just really quick, I want to um, go through some of the comments that we had. Um, Ada said hi. And then, oh. she, <laughs> yeah, she's here. She's here. Tiny. Oh, let me, I'll show her. She said hi. Hello. <laughs> she's one of our favorite people, a friend we have in common. I met her at a Buzzcock show, and you two are like super good friends, right? Yeah, we met at the, um, we worked together at the library at Rancho. Very cool. <laughs> Rock and roll librarians unite. <laughs> yeah, and she has a cool style. Um, and then uh, Sean said, Micronauts, when you read your Toys R Us story. Um, oops. Cindy Nessinger is here. She's like, oh, hi, hi Cindy. Francis Barella, who teaches anthropology, who's in my, who was in my writing group for years at and she's at Mount Sac, and you teach at Mount Sac. Um, she said, love it. And then Stephanie, one of our favorite people. Oh, hi, Steph. And then, so, yeah, we got we got a lot of people watching. So that's good. You know, we always oh, get a lot post, post live, but we're getting a lot live. Yeah, and, and Sean, who's a really close friend of mine, we met through the Library Star Wars Day. Sean does a lot of wonderful events. Um He's been the MC forever. He's part of the Road Squadron. So uh, wow! And he's wearing—is he wearing a Jedi outfit? Yeah, <laughs> that's Sean. <laughs> I Sean, when we did Star Wars Day, when I was in the hospital at Cedar Sinai, they brought out like a cardboard standee of me in a Jedi outfit, and uh, Sean had them all wish me well. So that was a really sweet. Uh, oh, sweet I remember book. that. That's in your book too, right? The Star Wars Day. Yeah, and then Sean and I also literally like three weeks after I could fly in a plane, I ended up on a panel talking about our Star Wars event with Sean in Orlando, Florida. That was my first real excursion out. So uh, <laughs> Amazing, amazing. And then Stephanie says the IE is a, cre a creative, inspiring area. It's got its own special vibe. Stephanie would know this. She was a professor. Oh, yes. Fantastic writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And pick up her new book, um, Pretend Plumber, I believe is the name. I think it's for pre-order. Um, and Stephanie, if you want to put uh, the name of your book in the comments, that'd be great so people can uh, get that. Um, so just really quick. Um, what did you learn from your journey? And, you know, I know you say in your book, and you, you make this very clear that this is not a morality tale, um, heart like a starfish, that there is no, just like you do in the Toys R Us story, you're not trying to give a message across. This isn't an after school special. There's no lesson to be learned. But I would disagree. There's, <laughs> there's a message of hope. You have this Bansky painting that kind of appears over and over. There, here comes the sun by the Beatles over and over. So would you agree with that? Um, because I've done a lot of talks for um, One Legacy, which uh, has people who uh, either families of or people who uh, were organ recipients. And we go and speak everywhere to schools, to hospitals. Aww. And so we can kind of put a face on it and urge people to get the pink dot on their driver's license. I'll do that today on your podcast. Please. And so, um, donor, everyone. So I would say, um, my thing is, um, I think it's outlook a lot. Um, I, when I was at Cedar Sinai, I was at Cedar Sinai, which is this world renowned hospital. 
I went in with a 20% chance of living. I was the worst person at, when I was there on that uh, CCU unit. The woman next to me, I could hear, and I could hear her moaning all the time. And how it worked was if you haven't walked for months and months, if you haven't gone to the gym, they have to get you back up and walking. And it hurts. It hurts. Your legs are like wet noodles every step. Just walking around the nurse's station once is excruciating, right? You're practically in tears. I had 27 IVs. I had two machines on each side of me, a wheelchair. I had like a NASCAR team to take me on this walk. So they would schedule 45 minutes for each patron on that floor to do your 45 minute walk. Cause that's how long it took to hook you up and all that. Wow. The woman next to me, she was in pain. She didn't want to walk. She wasn't going to walk. And so I told the nurses and staff, I'm not doing anything. I'll take her 45 minutes. You guys are scheduled to anyway. Right. And so I think, um, if somebody's going through that, whether it be a transplant or other, like, major surgery. I think uh, things that helped me were uh, a mindset. I'm going to help myself. Mm -hmm. And I thought my mindset was it would be selfish not to. I have so many families, so many friends mm -hmm. that are going so on the line for me. You owe something to them. You owe something wow. to yourself. I'm going to get, you know, out of here. I'm going to take those two to three walks a day. If another patient on the floor doesn't want to take it, they would just come right in. Yeah. And even with one of the nurses, I'm not supposed to say this at all as a medical professional, but I hope the next heart that comes in is for you. You deserve it. <laughs> You're going to make the most of your you know, life. Yeah. And you changed all of your habits too after, right? You quit drinking, oh, you quit oh. eating in and out and all this stuff that I still right. do. I still do a couple in and out. So I'll, I'll confess, like on my birthday, like two or three. Do it. Let us wrap. Yeah. It's not my day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of veggies, lots mm -hmm. of a little bit more of my wonderful home cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I changed my diet. I changed my exercise habits. Uh, I somehow have become this, became this advocate for people to live healthy. Which, <laughs> if you'd seen me on my sofa <laughs> with my Del Taco, you would have thought, that guy. Um I lost about 25. I had McDonald's plus. today, so I'm not supposed to show that. <laughs> but, but, but you know what? This is my other lesson, though, too, I learned. It's like, let's say I love double-doubles. Uh, and I think uh, if I tell myself I'm never going to have one again, yeah. and then I go and I break down and have one, then you just go completely down that hill. I might as well have one tomorrow the next day. But if I know yeah. every two or three months, I'll treat myself to a double-double. Um I don't stress out about it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to allow yourself it. Cause I don't eat a lot of McDonald's. I have a small stomach. So I had weight loss surgery. So I'll have like half a cheeseburger and I don't get the fries and a diet Coke. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like, how many, how much calories is that? And I just, there's something about a cheeseburger for me and it's, it tastes like nostalgia. And I just remember my dad bringing the cheeseburgers to, you know, remember when your parents could bring you a happy meal to junior yeah. high? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think, you know, I, it's funny, especially like the first year. So I don't know if I should eat this in front of your eyes. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I 
that's respectful, though. I mean, it's nice. Uh, just really yeah. quick, we're going to go through some more comments. Um, oh, I love this one. Have lightsaber will travel from Sean Crosby. <laughs> Very Stephanie, true. Um, the book is for Tim Plummer. It's doing Landia. Um, so you can go there, but she also put the link. Oh, Tracy's here. She said, hi, bestie. Hi, Alan. I'm loving your tales of nostalgia. Uh, that's my bestie. And then Stephanie Barbie Hammer said, oh, I'm out the best. And then Cindy said, hero. What a great inspiration. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the book is inspiring. Despite your best efforts not to make it messagey, it is very inspiring because I, you know, I just so identified with, it's not like you had any warning. It's no. like all of a sudden, one day you pass out and you think you're diabetic, but pretty soon you realize your heart's pretty much at 20%. Was that what it was at? About 20%? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And literally, I felt like myself being tired and stuff, but I was going to grad school, working full time and teaching as an adjunct at Mount Sac. So it was like my thought was I'm going to be fine once I get through um, this semester. Right. And get through grad school. And when I was brought to the hospital, the doctors, they started getting into it with um, Dennis and my sister. Why are you taking him in? He should be dead. Mm-hmm. they said wow. he, he shouldn't have been able to walk and they're like no he's working at the library he's doing this big star wars program he's a grad and they and the doctor he's in a rock band <laughs> he's in a rock band and then the doctor said no with that heart he has on him it was an artery that never fully formed from birth there is no way he's doing all this stuff but wow you're a testament Speaking of testaments, Eric Ulagi is here. Hi, Eric. Hey, Eric. Another common friend. See, I told you we have these intersections. Eric and I went to high school together. He used to dress like Adam Ant, and I used to dress like Susie. And then Alan and Eric, you guys have known each other forever, right? Since it's childhood from, um, we've both been in the local music scene for forever. Um Eric has seen us play before Refrigerator in the Bucks, which was a really, we weren't the greatest band. We, we downright embarrassing at times, but we were a lot of fun. <laughs> well, Refrigerator is great. And I wish I would have told you to have, like, have a song ready. So. You know, I'm, I'm getting really into your music. I was, I was telling you that I, I started listening to some of your songs and I love your uh, high register. So someone else is here, Martha. Hi, Alan. Oh, hi, Martha. Here. Okay, so next question. Because I'm transitioning. We were just talking about your band, Refrigerator. And uh, I think your brothers in that band, Dennis uh, Kalachi. And then uh-huh. um, also you said Brian, what's his name? Um, uh, Chris Jones is our drummer, another childhood friend. And Daniel Brodo, who's a baby who just joined the group about 16 years ago. So, And uh, speaking of Refrigerator, this is their latest project with Mark Givens and uh, Dennis at Bamboo Dart. And this is... Um, refrigerator so long to farewell and it comes with a cd right uh yes it's and that amazing comes the deluxe uh, version of this new record yes yeah and um just really quick i just wanted to show this is because i'm a halloween freak you have this uh drawing that you did in here that says three more days to halloween i love that <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I, I love halloween okay but speaking of music so i, I really wanted and i wore my replacement shirt 
Um, how Love does <laughs> how does being a musician and like um, being a singer specifically and playing an instrument how how does that help you with your writing? Um, and I say this uh, because I think there's a natural rhythm to your writing and a punk sensibility to it. So how does being a musician how does that play into your writing? I think um, with music, obviously you develop like kind of a rhythm. Um, yeah. You develop an appreciation. Um, and for us, a great thing, you know, uh, if you're a writer, it's such a solitary thing. And I think uh, being in a band, you get to collaborate. And I think that's why writing a book, to me, might be the hardest artistic feat to me. I might be wrong because it's such a solitary thing. Um, yeah, the- you're right, because all the best bands, whether you're talking about the Beatles, uh, John Lennon and McCartney, you're talking about uh, Johnny Marr and Morrissey and the Smiths, or you're talking about, like, let's say, Kim Deal and Frank Lang from the Pixies, some of my favorite bands, or... The Replacements. Uh, oh, Paul Westerberg, who's one of the best songwriters of all time, and Tommy Stinson, who I, I love, too, and who I've seen just on his solo stuff is amazing. I mean, that is collaborative, right, by nature. I mean, I know that some people write their stuff solo, but do you write with uh, your brother and other people in your band when you write music? Um, usually, like for most songs, like I'll, I'll write a lyric and Dennis will, but we'll be each That's other's cool. best uh, critics. Mm-hmm. And I think that can go for if you're in a writing group too. I've been in different creative writing classes and some of the issues I find most part are people are either too nice yeah. it's good they're hesitant or they're just you get one or two in every creative writing class we're just like mean right they're not constructive uh, god yes there's always one like resting bitch face person where you're, like, <laughs> you're like what is this, is this true yeah it's called memoir for a friggin' reason yeah, it's true. I don't care if it seems contrived because right. it's true. So, but I think, I think having a, a band or a good writing group where you get constructive, mm-hmm. honest criticism is such a rare, valuable thing as a writer, a musician. I think that's, that stays the same too. And, and at, even as a band, we're like, if one member of the band doesn't like something, we won't do it. Mm. we're going to change that line that song won't go on the record oh we're i guess that's not a democracy when one person could torpedo it but we want everybody to be happy and we want to be able to um compromise i think that's a large part of a being in a band or in a writing group a great writing group i think is really helpful or a great writing scene which mm-hmm. you know dennis and i were just talking about to us, this is like another golden age for us, finding all the musicians and music that we found in the shrimper scene. And now through Bambor Dart, Inlandia, Pelicanesis, we're finding this wonderful group of like-minded writing individuals. Uh, 100%. Is- when we were at John Brangenheim's um, street fair book thing that he did where we all got to like, I, mine was on pre-order at that point, but like everyone was there and reading and we all got to meet each other. It was like, you're right. Like a renaissance. Like I was like, is this what like Virginia Woolf and like that crew felt like when they, not that I can ever compare to her or James Joyce, but I'm just saying 
finding your people in your community, kind of like the punk rock scene in the 70s, right? In New York. Yes. Like Warhol and Lou Reed and all these people are kind of, Bowie are kind of like intersecting at the same point and exploding. And and I think that's true too. Like, um, look at like, we know a lot of the same people, right? Even here tonight, Eric, Aida, whatever. I think we're all very strong, individual, creative uh people who all kind of gravitate and find each other mm-hmm. in this like desert right this tatooine if you want to use the star wars thing <laughs> right and i'll put people like on in this too uh i think we find each we find our like-minded people we we recognize them right mm-hmm. it's a secret knock yeah um, someone put up on the chafee page uh this week do you remember when you'd be sitting in the quad and everyone would be smoking cigarettes or pot and the proctor would walk by and someone would go, Mark, Mark. And I was like, Oh my God. I just remembered sitting in the quad with your people, whether it's the, the punkers kind of hung out with the Hessians sometimes. So we kind of gravitate towards there. Eric hung out with us and it was me, Tracy, a bunch of people, some guy who looked kind of like um, Johnny Depp from the movie with the, you know, Edward Scissorhands. And, right. But, um, yeah, hold on really quick. Um, Eric said, remember the anti-club? Yes, there's a story there. Tell us the story. The story was the, the anti-club. This was maybe the last show uh, our band, the Bucks, played. So anti-club, classic L.A. punk rock club for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. Somehow our band gets booked on Straight Edge Night. Oh. And we're a band. We were obnoxious. We, our major influence at the time were like the Dead Kennedys, Sex Pistols. <laughs> we had goofy, offensive songs like Microwave Poodle or, you know, Blood is Thicker Than Pepsi. <laughs> and so there's like a dozen of our friends, Eric included, there to see us. Everybody else is these hardcore straight edge punks, <laughs> right? And then oh. they started to get no really <laughs> really angry and then for those who don't know what the straight edge scene was god bless him but it was like um we're not gonna drink we're not gonna smoke right we're not going to do all this destructive behavior right mm-hmm. so we did some comments right and to this is the punk in some ways but i mean I, I there's some great straight edge bands don't get me wrong i just never knew about them when i was that age so we started calling them things like punk rock mormons and things like that <laughs> just, I could see that. I mean, yeah. I mean, especially in the IE, I don't even think there was a straight edge scene. Um, I, I don't remember straight edge. There was one in the OC, I know that, and in, in LA, but in the IE, you if you didn't have a bottle of Strawberry Hill and two packs of cigarettes, you were not going to be hanging out with anyone. Sorry. That's our scene. So. <laughs> yeah, don't wear it out. Okay, so Jeff Solo. Oh, Jeff is also part of the Star Wars uh, community, and he's on a podcast with uh, Sean called Docking Bay 94 that's on every Thursday. Oh, on what? Um, Thursday, I always link to them. Could you please post uh, how to get to yours, either Jeff or Sean? To yeah, Jeff, the exact For Docking Bay 94. I'm a Star Wars fan, and my dog is here. He won't come out, but his name's Chewbacca, and he looks like him. Yes. So we'll bring him in at the end. Um, then Stephanie said, 
oh god, Jam, you resting bitch face. Um, <laughs> oh, Francis said trace Libras forever. Uh, that was our writing group. And I think you have something there about finding the writing group um, and finding the musical group if you're in a band that you can really like inspire each other. I was in a writing group with Francis Barella and Linda Hogan, both who were memoirists. And I had mm-hmm. always been in multi-genre writing groups where there were fiction and poetry. And I'm a hybrid writer. I do poetry too and essays. But when I found my memoir group, we were in it together for almost like 10 years. And I pretty much, they read my whole memoir in that group. And there's something different when you find your people and they're both, you know, 10 years older than me, but we're like, like sisters. Like that's why we called each other Trace Libras because we're all born in October. And uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think I've never thought about connecting a band, like the idea of being in a band and writing song lyrics and stuff with being in a writing group and kind of inspiring each other, but it's important. Well, look at how many bands, when they break up, the quality goes down. You know, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Uh, like mm-hmm. Lennon and McCartney needed each other to balance each other out, and they listened to one another. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I was always a John Lennon fan, and my twin sister was always a McCartney fan. So I do think there's a different sensibility there in their writing. You know, John is probably more melancholy and soulful and Paul's a little more happy and go lucky and like more um, melodic. And uh, yeah, interesting. I'm a huge Beatles fan too, but my twin sister is a bigger Beatles fan. Um, and, and I love that we're talking about the Beatles in front of Aida. She loves the Beatles. <laughs> oh, okay. So really quick, um, since we're talking about music and uh, if you want to put your favorite Beatles song, please do in the comments. Um, you're clearly a music fanatic. I mean, uh, beyond, beyond. I love, love, love. If anyone should get a book, it is your book, Louder Than Goodbye. It's an ebook. You can get it on the Pelicanesis website. But you have all, you have the Toys R Us stuff, but you have all these music essays. You write about Nirvana, Prince, Bowie, Lou Reed, and David Cassidy. And you and I talked about this, like my secret obsession to this day is like Sean Cassidy taxi dance taxi taxi driver no taxi dancer putting on another show with darling didn't you know and I <laughs> bought the album the other last year when or maybe four years ago on like in a bin and I play it and I like I just I love it and you love David well my sister uh that was her like crush right mm-hmm. and and I always, I still think David Cassie had a real unique, distinct voice um, that kind of, in, in some of our songs, you might hear a little bit of that, but you'd never find that. And Dennis and I were talking about this. And we talked about it a little bit about the concept of guilty pleasures or when you're younger, even in your 20s, early 30s, you have that. But now Dennis and I were like, there should be no guilty pleasure. You can just like something to like it. It's not a guilty pleasure. It's something pleasurable. You like this band. You like that band. Um, even though, you know, it is. I'm, I'm a metalhead. I'm a punker. I'm indie. <laughs> you know, I, the great thing about getting past 35 or so is those things don't matter. <laughs> no. no, they don't. And I refuse to apologize. And I've been asked to for my love of Morrissey. And everyone can just F off because he saved my life in high school. I mean, he saved my life. The Smiths was... And, to this day, the Smiths and Morrissey's solo stuff 
I just love him. I just love him. I know his politics and all that. I don't worry about that because you can't judge any of these singers by today's uh, what what our threshold is now. If you look back at Bowie, Iggy Pop, Louis, all the stuff they did. Okay, and they're very unapologetic about it. If you hold everyone to today's standards, and that's not to forgive their behavior, forgive what Morrissey says, but what I'm saying is don't ever ask me to apologize because what I will say is the music speaks for itself. And for me, he saved my life and I am forever grateful and I am forever a fangirl and I will forever go to his shows and I will pay whatever price and I'll be in the front row if I can. Yeah, and I think we need to separate the art from the artist. Actually, um, Sean I and, and Jeff was there too. We did our first Harry Potter book club event about um, a few months ago for the first time really? in a couple of years because of the J.K. Rowling controversies. And that was one of the major issues we, we tackled in that discussion. Uh, Harry Potter brought so many people such joy. I might not like where the author's going and some of her standards, but can I separate her from the work? Yeah. And I, I have to say, I just saw a fantastic piece and it was really well done. She wrote the screenplay and uh, uh, the one with Dumbledore and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I don't, you could take whatever someone says and yeah, we're not always going to have the same belief system. And I have a lot of friends that are not as liberal and progressive as I am, but I think because I'm a public defender and I have to deal with district attorneys and I have to tell them my client's stories, I've learned that I get a lot further with being kind and I'll, I'll put on the pressure when I need to. And I can be a, a, a very harsh and aggressive what some might call a bitch when I need to be, I can turn on the bitch meter, but usually my go-to now is sugar. And, um, I started out as a public defender fighting everything and it was so exhausting. And then I started thinking, okay, what if I'm just like, cause I would never do this small talk when I got to court to DAs. So I was like, I ain't going to small talk them. They're the friggin' evil people. And then I was like, Hey, and then you get to know them and you understand that maybe some of them come from a violent household or they've seen this violent crime and they have their own agenda and they have their own view of the world. And then I just started connecting more and trying to connect with them and, and, and be kinder and not nicer per se, but just charming. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think if there's a, a major problem or issue at the center of our current times it's a lack of empathy for mm -hmm. the other for others mm -hmm. regardless yeah. of where you're at or what side you're on i think we're uh losing that and i think once you lose that you lose a lot you it's easy to dehumanize yeah. um and uh or have rational discussions i think we've all gone into our own corners and i think it's sad especially with the crises we're facing at this moment, we need to be more together than we've ever been. I agree. I agree. And we need to connect and talk it out. And, um, you know, I've gotten every good opportunity really through my friendships and it's really amazing. I'm like, I know how like old white men feel because I feel like I've created these connections with people and like people like just gift me stuff or they gift me an opportunity and I try to pay it back too. But I mean, it is about networking and about building your community and then bringing other people in that need to be brought in and be brought up, whether that's, you know, by race or gender or trans, whatever you want to focus on. But I really, I do try to be super inclusive. And that's um, one of the things I'm focusing on now is 
creating a network of people that are diverse in every way, whether it's sexuality, whether it's the way they write, it's their subject matter, whether it's their race. I mean, it's just important to just create the circle of friends that, you know, kind of shows the world that we live in too, right? That you're not insular and that you don't just surround yourself with people that think and look like you, right? No, and I can, and I, and I, and like, yeah. And so you're like, oh, that you're, you're such a dreamer. So utopian. Like, no, I still acknowledge there are some people that are a holes out there. Yeah. They are. There are, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know that, uh, you know, and I, I can acknowledge that. But I also know I'd like to believe. I, I know, Aida, I'm going to hear from you later about this, but I'd like to think the majority of people, there's some kind of connection if you cut through all this division and self-imposed uh, walls we put between each other. I think there's a little there's more. There's a connection to be made. And um, just really quick, is Louder Than Goodbye, is that a riff-off Louder Than Bombs, the title of your book? Um, well, it started out, it was an old refrigerator song. From way back in the day, um, about like a breakup, which you know, how many songs have not been written about breakups <laughs> with some? <laughs> um, but it's not to say I, I truly believe this, and I know some people say that though. But I think you have things as a writer or musician or whatever that are just in your subconscious that you know about. And you're like, you know, obviously I, I owned a copy of you know Louder Than Bombs uh for sure so it could have been like in there in the back of my mind not consciously but that's not to say subconsciously no exactly i mean that's why um when i was writing my book i was staying away from reading too many memoirs set in the same time period because i didn't want it to somehow seep into my subconsciousness and then i have you've read my story about the challenger explosion and i even the david bowie song after i wrote it I swear I would see the Challenger explosion everywhere, whether it was on Glow. I read it in another book after I finished my book. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't see this stuff before because it would have permeated. You can't help. You can't help, right? You know, it's kind of like when you buy like a a car or a new used car. You buy Mm -hmm. it and you're like, I never knew so many people were driving this model car before (laughs) until I bought one, right? (laughs) You like slug <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have about five, ten minutes left. Okay. I, we have to talk about this, and I'm going to put up Ada's comment because of this. She says, my first album was a bootleg of Sean Cassidy, but David was hotter. Uh, I agree with that. Sean was hot. Um, but so you and I have talked about this. Um, you weave in everything from Sean Cassidy to the replacements to Beatles. Have how do you weave that in? Like, what do you do? You sit down and do you think about it and pick a band and write it with like a structure, or does it just come organically? It all depends. For um, louder than goodbye, I was blogging a lot then mm. for Huffington Post and BK Nation, and um, also at that particular time, we just started to lose a lot of artists, starting with Bowie and Prince and Tom Petty. Um, it, it it was just a horrible stretch, right, for these yeah. big icons. And I became, um, for some of those blogs, they're like, Alan, could you write a blog? This person just passed away. Can you write uh, 
And I, I wouldn't want to, I, again, my spin on, I, I didn't want to write about here's what this person did and yeah. why they, you know, were part. I'm like, here's my personal connection. Um, mm-hmm. I remember my friend, Kevin Powell from BK nation do a write up on Mary Tyler Moore. She who had passed away. And I'm like, I have nothing to say about Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, what I have am I going to say about Mary Tyler Moore? <laughs> and he's like, you can do it. So I started thinking about it. I'm like, that was my mom's favorite show back in the seventies. My mom mm-hmm. was a single working woman named Mary from Minnesota. Wow. And I was like, and I had never realized it. Of course, I came to the realization writing that her solace every Saturday was seeing herself reflected for that 30 minutes because there weren't single women, working women mm-hmm. on their own until that show. Mm-hmm. I never got why that show meant that much to her. Or I related to it too my whole life. You know, I was like, trying to be cool at 17, 18, and still loving Mary Tyler Moore reruns, right? <laughs> I've always loved, I used to watch them as reruns when I was a kid, and then we had One Day at a Time, which was kind of a later version of the single mom story, and that was one of my favorite stories, uh, my favorite TV shows, but you're right. I mean, you don't necessarily need to have that connect. You can find it, and I just want to read, just so people, do you mind if I read this part from your Bowie? Oh, sure. It's called Adolescence, uh, Stardust to Stardust, Ashes to Ashes, David Bowie remembered. From the spikes, sneering punks, and the stylish new romantics, to the faded old rockers and the dance club strutters, from the Motown lovers to the white-nosed soldiers, from the mother of three enthusiastically humming along to Rebel Rebel and a six-year-old Hyundai to the black jean hipsters squirming their way onto the guest list. Music obsessive will never agree on anything again the way they did when it came to David Bowie. <laughs> I still think that's best. true. Yes. And I defriended a couple people because they were talking about why are all these people crying about David Bowie and you talk about that. I got a tattoo when David Bowie died. I mean, I I cried for four days and I listened to every almost every David Bowie song because I just bought his almost his full catalog on CD and I found songs I'd never heard before. And I mean, I I was devastated. Prince too. Um devastated. Devastated. And those were literally like months apart. It was. And again, I think we talked about our people, the outcasts, the dreamers and misfits. Mm-hmm. Who better represents those than Bowie and Prince? Oh, no one, right? Nobody. I mean, Bowie influenced everyone from, you know, the New York Dolls to Morrissey to everyone. I mean, everyone. He's such a chameleon. He went through so many transitions in his life and always. I mean, I, I honestly believe he was given a gift from the universe from god whatever you want to call it ziggy we uh real quick we're going to talk about two things my favorite bowie album is ziggy stardust what is yours uh mine would be honky dory i know we've we've talked about this (laughs) i don't agree but i see why i see why i think ziggy stardust is like the best book i've ever listened to it's like there's a narrative, there's a thread there. Every song is a chapter. But I mean, from a pure song perspective, I think one could argue that you're right. And I am not looking down on Ziggy Stardust at all. I think no, Ziggy no. Stardust is a masterpiece as well. But and I Life think Mars. Life on Mars is just my favorite yeah. Bowie song. One of my favorite top 20 songs of all time. 
Oh, me too. Yeah, I just watched um, Life Aquatic. I'd never seen it. I didn't know about the Bowie theme. And then I was like, oh, how come no one told me about this movie? It's like full of like Bowie <laughs> Yeah. And okay. So really quick, we're going to end on two things. Um, can you tell people where to find your books? Um, so everyone can go out and buy all of Alan Kalachi's books, as well as his music, Refrigerator, Heart Like a Starfish is on telekinesis. Sure. And so um, I hope all, all the people who are writers and artists appreciate this. I And if you do like local artist bands, um, I would urge people, you can go to Amazon. But if you can, like for us, you can go to the Shrimper website. Just Google Shrimper Records to make it easy for you. And um, for Pelicanesis, go to the Pelicanesis site. And if you love other authors on other small presses, you can go to their site because uh, the dirty secret of the publishing and music industry is if you go to Amazon, these writers, musicians, and artists will get maybe a nickel. If you buy from them directly, better yet, go to their shows, go to their readings. They'll do a lot better. If you go to their site, if you buy something off Bamboo Dart Press, which a lot of us are on, um, you will also get some cool stickers and stuff that Mark will throw in there for you. So um, I would urge people to go to uh, the direct source and not just for my stuff, but for any band, local band, writer uh, or artist that you uh, appreciate. Yeah. Okay, great. And um, so the, your books are um, 17 in Life. You can buy that on Bamboo Dart. Like I said, Heart Like a Starfish on Pelicanesis. The Long Goodbye is available on Pelicanesis or on Shrimper Records, I believe. Um, so just go to all those websites. I just want to say really quick, um, I think um, Stephanie said her uh, first concert. I can't find it. Someone said their first concert was Bowie, and I hate you and love you, Martha. <laughs> and then um, Car Capri Pants. I don't know. Maybe I'm not getting that. Oh. <laughs> now we're talking about fashion of Mary Tyler Moore, which I will agree with. Okay, so really quick, I want to end with this. And so I'm going to put you on the spot here. I might have given you a heads up. Today and just today, because I changed, and I sent you a list, but I changed it already. My top five bands in reverse order, and then you have to go. Oh, my God. Replacements. Susie. X. Smith's and the Cure, tied for number two, because I got had to get an extra one in. And, of course, the number one, David Bowie. On a different day, New York Dolls might make it in, or Pixies, but today, Replacements, Susie, X, Smith's and the Cure for number two, and number one, David Bowie. Go. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll work my I'll go I'll work my way down. So uh number one would probably be uh the Velvet Underground. Oh nice. Number two, this one's just for Aida, the Beatles. Um I'm gonna have to put the replacements in there too, because they just really um impacted me. Um and I could put a million more too. Uh, I love the Who because Quadrophenia was my record of my teenage years. I don't think anybody gets captures teenagers quite like um, Pete Townsend. Mm. And now I'm down to one more. Does it band or could it be a solo artist? It could be a solo artist. Etta James. Oh, nice. 
the greatest wow. female vocalist of all time. I love Etta James. See, I love this because I wouldn't have caught that. And I love that you put her in your top five. And I love that you put Lou Reed and Velvet Underground as number one because they probably, even more so than any band there is, influenced every band there is. Other than the Beatles, maybe, right? Right. So this has been amazing. It's this has been so much fun. <laughs> we could talk for three more hours, but this is <laughs> we could. We could. So I do have to say that please watch me next month. You can go on the winitaemance.com to watch this episode and old episodes of Life of Gem. I'm gonna have Jose Hernandez Diaz who wrote a chat book called The Fire Eaters on next month. If you go on my website, you can find out the date. But um I think that we're about done, but I just want to give you the date of that next podcast. That is going to be episode eight. And that is, like I said, with Jose Hernandez Diaz on May 25th. That's always on a Wednesday, always at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Thank you, Alan. Any last Thank words? Um, this has just been terrific. It's always terrific. I feel like we've known each other for forever. Oh, so. Totally. We could talk music and uh, writing and <laughs> life. So yeah. thank you for having me, uh, Juanita. This was this was a blast. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Ada. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, everyone who came on. Stephanie, everyone that watched. And Eric, love you guys. Have a good night. Peace out. <laughs>